this is the Embodying Change podcast, and you're listening to Melissa Pitotti. In our sector, we talk a lot about duty of care, preventing sexual exploitation, abuse, and harassment. This even has an acronym, PSEAH. We talk about safety first. We talk about a victim or survivor-centered approach. For this conversation, in this episode, we have the privilege to hear from a victim survivor herself on what these words mean to her at a very practical level. How should we be thinking about them? What should they look like in practice? What should we be doing differently? How should we be behaving differently? I'll admit this is the hardest interview I've done so far in terms of preparing the questions and researching. Um, We handle some very difficult subject matter, including rape. So I want you to know that up front and take care of yourself. In the core humanitarian standard, we strive to share information about success and failure openly with a range of stakeholders to promote a system-wide culture of openness and accountability. This is indicator 4.5, by the way. It is with this spirit that we enter into conversation today with Sabrina Prioli. All right. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Sabrina Prioli. Welcome. Hi. Hi to everyone. And thank you, Melissa, for inviting me. Thank you so much for reaching out, Sabrina. I have recently finished reading your memoir. Um, I think it was published in 2020. And the short title is Rise Up Phoenix. I have to say it's a very powerful story. I read it, the English translation, which is powerful. And the original in your language, Italian, in your native language, Italian, is must be also quite moving. And before we dive into your story and what you've learned, um, I'd like to point out that today you are a certified coach. You have extra training on the issue of trauma. And I would really like Uh, your thoughts on how to set the stage for some of our listeners um, who may find parts of our conversation today a bit um, upsetting. So uh, first of all, I would like to say that uh, um, our triggers are excellent teachers Mm -hmm. because they can uh, give us insights into our beliefs and they can also show us aspects of ourselves where we may need to heal. So getting curious about what you are being triggered is really important and helpful. Um, If uh, uh, I will say something that can trigger you, you can do this really simple exercise. And so if you feel like negative emotions like anger, uh, sadness, anxiety, frustration, uh, you can place your hand on the part of your body where you are experiencing the emotion. So it could be the your stomach, it could be your neck, you could be it, could, it can be your head, and so you can visualize it leaving your body as you breathe out, or you can close your eyes and focus on a sound far from you or very close to you, and uh, while you do it. Try to leave all thoughts behind. And if the thoughts returns, focus again on the sound. So this simple exercise uh, will help you to relieve these negative emotions and you can be centered again. So I hope uh, this uh, uh, simple exercise can uh, help uh, our listeners. <laughs> Thank you, Sabrina. And I was doing it as you were talking. So ah, great. <laughs> probably, I'll probably keep... Uh, going back to that. So thank you so much. So for those listeners who might be unfamiliar with you and your work, would you like to say a bit more to introduce yourself? Yes. Um, Of course, in my introduction, I will also explain what happened to me because uh, so it's more clear for all of the the person listening what's why I'm here, you know, in this podcast. So I uh, worked for years as uh, an aid worker and uh, a consultant for different humanitarian projects. I worked as a PMNE, uh, so Planning, Monitor and Evaluation Specialist, for different organizations and NGOs in Latin America, in Africa, and uh, in Europe. Um, in July 2016, while I was working in South Sudan, in Juba, for um, some USAID project. 
uh, a civil war bleak, uh, blitzkrieg uh, and broke out and um, lasted about uh, 10 days. I don't remember exactly how many days. I was uh, in a compound with other aid workers and we were not rescued and evacuated. And uh, after a few days, the soldiers entered our compound, looted and they beat us and uh, they killed in front of us uh, a South Sudanese uh, aid worker. And, uh, and then... Um, the soldiers said, mm, well, I was raped and I was tortured by five soldiers. Mm-hmm. And this is was, that was devastating for me. Mm-hmm. I say always that I died inside mm-hmm. uh, while being raped and tortured. Mm-hmm. And I had to make a huge effort to recover and to find myself again. Mm-hmm. So I experienced the effect of PTSD. And um, fortunately, through uh, I'm MDR and coaching, I was able to heal. So mm-hmm. I experienced a lack of medical and psychological support, financial mm-hmm. resource to heal and live, support mm-hmm. healing for my family, and legal support to obtain justice. Mm-hmm. So this is very important to say, because I think uh, this is something that not just me, but most of the women, they were raped or abused they experienced this this lack yeah this is this this is a very serious incident that you lived through and not just the incident itself which some people might know of as uh would you call it the terrain compound attack yes terrain compound attack yes the terrain terrain compound attack that happened in 2016 so in the moment it was extremely difficult and then after Um, and so I think what would be really helpful because you've been um, very open about your experience of an assault on the job as an aid worker, and you've also talked about the work you've done since then to heal. So you, you mentioned EMDR. I think that's, um, it's a therapy that you use rapid eye movements and you did coaching. So you've really talked about your journey to heal and also uh, your journey to seek justice. Mm. Um, and so with your permission, because I, f- I think this is so important, your story, and also uh, for aid organizations now who are uh, trying to meet their duty of care and prepare for, um, in case this incident happens to others, they would like to prepare better for that case. I wonder with your permission, could we walk through what we can be doing differently to support people who have gone through, who are going through, and who will in the future experience mm-hmm. something like this? Yeah. Well, uh, as, I, as I said, I, um, you know, experienced a lack of a lot of things. Especially, um, in, especially after the incident. So mm-hmm. my organizations, well, our organization, because I wasn't the only person, the only woman was raped, um, couldn't uh, help us. Also, uh, giving us basic things, mm-hmm. uh, just for example, listening us or um, suggesting us to, for example, don't shower, don't, uh, um, uh, you know, um, change our clothes or throw out our clothes, or for example, uh, giving us uh, some medical treatment immediately after uh, to, you know, (laughs) avoid some uh, illness or pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are so many things. So it's important to understand that uh, in, after a sexual violence, it's important to understand what to do immediately after, mm-hmm. uh, after 70, 24, 72 hours, and or, for example, um, after care. So there are different steps that mm-hmm. uh, uh, has to be respected and has mm-hmm. to be, you know, um, has to be respected for a victim. 
Um, and for example, what I can say that it's really important uh, um, how to support a, a, a person, a woman or a man immediately after an experience like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so listen, I said before, mm-hmm. and believe the survivor, victim survivor, mm-hmm. remind them that they are not alone and don't mm-hmm. judge or blame them for what happened. I remember uh, after that what happened to me, uh, a mm-hmm. colleague, a man, mm-hmm. okay, it, it wasn't uh, his, um, you know, he didn't want to, to, to injure me, you know, to, to, but he, he told me, could you uh, try to, could you defend yourself? Why you don't, you didn't defend yourself? Or could you do something to avoid this? Uh, how could I, you know, with the soldiers where they, uh, with arms, they uh, obligated us to be there. And they, while I was raping, they used their arm. How could I defend myself? But even if they didn't use the arm, while you, while a woman or a man is being raped, uh, there are so many things that happens to our body and this is the trauma how we react to the trauma is different by person and person you can escape you can fight you can you know there is a um, a literature about trauma so mm-hmm. at that point at that moment for me it's uh, the how I experienced the trauma it was that I uh, fly away so I really died to mm-hmm. resist all of, of the rape and I mm-hmm. to resist it, to the torture. So don't judge or blame for mm-hmm. what happened mm-hmm. and uh, encourage the survivor and victim to get help but respecting mm-hmm. his or her decision. Uh, so encourage them to go to the hospital, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, don't uh, uh, insist if the person doesn't want. Mm-hmm. So don't pressure the person. Mm-hmm. Or um, it's important to reassure the survivor of the importance of the evidence preservation for further investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also important uh, do not uh, um, tell them to forget about the assault. Ah. Because, yeah, this is so important. Because I always hear, mm-hmm. okay, forget it, Sabrina. Forget it's done. You're alive. Forget it. That doesn't help because it will take time for a victim survivor to deal with these feelings and emotions. So what is important to do is being patient and listening. Mm. Um, And also it's important to bear in mind that the person not want to be touched. Sometimes even a hug might upset the person. Ah. So ask first. Um, and of course, respecting the culture of the person by using appropriate language and behavior. And uh, it's important to preserve the evidence of the rape. For example, I didn't uh, preserve any evidence because they didn't tell me that. But uh, it was important that they had to tell me because I was in trauma. I was in shock. I couldn't think yes. about, okay, now I have to preserve the evidence. I don't have, I don't have a shower. No, it's impossible for a person is in shock. Yes. So, um, and also ask to the person what they need. They didn't mm-hmm. ask me, Sabrina, what do you need? You mm-hmm. know what I needed in that moment? And uh, a new underwear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So a simple question, it's also help the person mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Uh, and also inform the, of the importance of uh, medici- medicine to prevent uh, mm-hmm. unwanted pregnancy, mm-hmm. HIV, and uh, sexual transmitted infections. So this is important for people who, uh, you know, are um, helping a person um, had a trauma like that. And, uh, of course, uh, um, well, what the uh, organization has to do, uh, it's another, you know, it's another point that maybe we will talk later. Mm. Wow, that's really powerful. And that that's another reason it's important to talk to people with lived experience, mm. because they, and you just have, bring up things people might not think about (laughs) Um, for example underwear that is something that 
people might not think about, but it's very important. And hugging. So I think some people showing compassion and not having words of want to hug you, but that maybe not is not what you want in the moment. So these are the things that really help to think about ahead of time. (laughs) Um, In your book, you also illustrated so beautifully in the aftermath of an incident or an assault that um, victim survivors can feel these waves. You can feel waves of shame or terror or grief or numbness, Mm -hmm. and it can happen long after, and it can be incapacitating in the sense that it's not... um, it's interfering with your ability to focus or to carry on with certain things in your life. It, it affects your personal life. It affects your professional life. Um, so um, because you went through your own healing journey, wasn't easy um, for other people who have gone or are going through or will go through this from a, a, survivor, a victim or a survivor perspective, would you have some advice for them? Yeah. This is a very nice question. You know why, Melissa? Because I also repeat (laughs) what I'm telling. It's like something that I repeat to myself every day. And um, that that makes me, you know, a bit, um, yeah, emotion. No negative emotion, but it's really, it's touched me. Because um, it's something that I repeat also to myself. So I also want to say to a person who you know, uh, experience the same thing I experienced by myself. So it is important to remember that it was not your fault. So sexual violence is a crime, no matter who commits it or where it happens, because I also was judged because I was in South Sudan. So do not be afraid to get help and uh, find support because dealing Uh, with the um, aftermath of rape or sexual assault can be overwhelming. But you are not alone. It may help to ask uh, to a trusted friend and family member or counselor. Um, So don't, uh, yeah, find support. And um, remember that uh, you can make your own decision. This is really important uh, because... uh, it's your decision how to respond to this uh, to this violence, and uh, that includes how to report, uh, which whom to to talk, if talk or not. So it's your decision, because uh, uh, what is important to understand if after a sexual violence, uh, the person experience, uh, you know, I felt for example, I didn't have any any power anymore. I felt without. Uh, um, I, I, I experienced very low uh, self-esteem. So the idea that I could make my decisions, that helped me to, to say to myself, okay, Sabrina, you can. It's your life. It's not their life. It's your life. And you can, because you can decide what you want uh, in your life. And I also think that uh, we are all naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. So we have all an um, innate, all innate capacity to rebuild ourselves and to reinvent ourselves. And that I did, I'm still doing, if it's really painful and it's not easy, but uh, I think that I, I have the resource to, to hear. And I think, I'm sure all of the people are listening they are resourceful, creative, and uh, and whole. So yeah, uh, and, and this is important now to see that uh, because this part um, let me think about the concept of survivor, to be survivor or to be a victim. So I, you know, most of the time I hear uh, well, women. For example, when I when I go to some um, meeting, conference, or when they invite me to talk about this topic and about what happened to me and about my fight for justice and reparation, 
They tell me, Sabrina, you are a survivor. You are not a victim. You are brave. You are so because you are um, finally you are um, living your life. So you are a survivor and not a victim. So that's a, I'm talking about me eh? because every person has a different feeling. But I feel victim and survivor. Sometimes I feel more survivor than victim, or sometimes I feel more victim than survivor. So um, I feel like a survivor when I'm able to recognize the rape, to express my anger, my pain, my frustration. Uh, But there are also moments when I feel like a victim. Uh, A woman, those life who, um, whose life has been taken. So, and in that moment, I feel really angry. So uh, don't judge yourself if you have low moments and if you feel victim, this is not bad. This is not something that, uh, ah, if I feel victim, it's like I'm weak. No, it's uh, your way to also your decision to feel victim or to feel survivor. There is no judgment as not to be judged this, uh, these things. I don't know if I, I express myself, um, uh, Melissa, sorry. Yes, <laughs> I, English. I, for, no, it was for me so helpful to get that clarity because I also, uh, we were talking before the interview, I, 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 I tend to want to lean towards the survivor framing because of the agency and the power, reclaiming power. Um, But you rightly point out in some moments, the victim framing is also absolutely on point. Yeah. Um, And also to add something more, mm -hmm. I, I, again, I'm talking about myself. So I'm sure that many women or men, they, uh, you know, feel the same, but I'm, I feel victim again, I, mm. I'm uh, re-victimized. I'm being re-victimizing by the mm. society, by mm. the justice, by the the, the justice system, by mm. the by how my organization treat mm. me. You know, by op- public opinion for what they you know in the media, uh, what is, is is written in the book, the oh, reaction yeah. of the people of my fight for justice and reparation. So it's like it was my fault that I was raped. This is a victim. Yes. And so, of course, at that moment, I feel a victim, not a survivor. Yeah. And some, this was very, so many things in the book that are difficult. It's just very upsetting. And I think it's in the beginning of the book where you give some quotes from social media of people who are commenting in a very judgmental, critical way what was happening. In a sense, in essence, blaming you for being in this situation and blaming you for wanting justice. Yeah. Um, it shifts the focus onto the person who is violated, not onto the people who are violating your rights. Um, and that, I think that is important um, for us to come back to this Yes, yeah. the, the waves of re-victimization. It happens in the work that we do at CHS Alliance. We see a lot of it happening to whistleblowers. So people mm-hmm. who are re- reporting misconduct, they become the center of attention and they get criticized for standing up and speaking out um, rather than the focus be on the, the behavior or yeah. the, the, the thing that happened. Um, it's on the person who actually stood up and said, we have to do something. Yeah. Um, and, and so we see this time and time again, um, how in, in essence, our context try to keep a status quo when someone actually tries to step up and say, this isn't correct, we need to do something else. Um, the systems try to res- push resistance, to put yeah. people back in their place there. Sure. Now, you, you mentioned... Um, uh, organizations how organizations are supporting now in the in the core humanitarian standard we have commitment eight Uh, we need to support our workforce and we need to treat them fairly and equitably and there's even um, indicator 8.9 that talks about having policies in place for the well-being and security of staff 
Um, there's a discussion in the guidance note about uh, the mm -hmm. concept of duty of care. And then we also have governments. Governments have a duty to protect their citizen. So I'm curious at this point, what is your call to action to uh, humanitarian aid agencies that have workforces who are um, exposed to um, critical incidents and assaults and to member states who are also implicated? Do you have a specific call to action? Yeah. Well, uh, I always, you know, uh, say and uh, I'm, uh, you know, this is also another fight <laughs> that I'm doing <laughs> because I think uh, organization and especially humanitarian organization, they can do a good work when their internal culture and uh, practices do not reflect what they promote in their work with communities. So there is a really a lack of response and support and, group and good practices in the organization. Mm -hmm. So it's important to create a policy. Uh, you know, it's important to create a culture of mm -hmm. nonviolence inside, and, uh, inside mm -hmm. the organization. Um, and creating a, co a comprehensive and contingency plan for responding to sexual violence uh, and abuse uh, and adapt this accordingly for different culture, it helps to create this culture, you know, to change the culture inside the organization. Um, so it's important to, uh, to recognize uh, that... Uh, Mm, the problem of uh, the sex, the problem of sexual assault in the organization uh, would help to alleviate the sense of isolation that victims and families of the victims experience. Because I felt isolated, my family felt isolated since after immediately after the sexual assault, uh, within twenty four. 72 hours after the post incident, the post incidents. So uh, there are, as I told before, there are different steps. And in this, in these different steps, as the organization has to do and has to create a specific plan, what to mm -hmm. do, who has to do that and when to do. Mm -hmm. And also is important and very urgent Mm -hmm. um, the survivor-centered approach in the organizations. Mm -hmm. I, for example, I say something. Um, during a consulting with an organization, there was a very big discussion regarding if the person can denounce anonymously or not mm -hmm. in the system of the, you know, the, the report system of the organization. There was a huge uh, discussion because uh, this organization, um, the role of this organization, organization is that the person who wants to denounce formally in uh, you know the uh, in the report system has to say the name, has to say their name. Or, so, how a victim of a survivor can be can feel safe, can feel. Um, can make a decision like that if it's if since the beginning is obligated to say his or her name, you know, in the report. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I understand what is a formal report that has to be, you know, when the police is, is involved and I understand that it's important, the name, it's important to, you know, to show up. But uh, when... Uh, um, is an internal report, it's important that this person uh, say and tell what happened to, for example, just a focal point or to, you know, I don't know, that can be the country director, but it's important that also this person um, feel safe to say or to say and to denounce anonymously. So this mm -hmm. is something that has to be respect. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and this is part of the uh, what I'm, I was telling before. This is part of the uh, survivor-centered approach, mm -hmm. um, because prioritize the safety, the well-being, and the wishes of the victim survivors, survivors in determining what action are taken and how. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I think this is very important uh, because will help a lot the recovery of the victim and survivors and, and the, yeah, help the, the, the recovery a lot. So the response system is really important for me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because when you are in a situation where you've been victimized, there are a lot of things to consider when you're deciding, do I want to, do I want to stop it here or do I want to go further? And the fear of reprisal, or could you say more about why people might not feel safe? For example, well, I mean, uh, if someone uh, is um, abused inside mm-hmm. the organization, Mm-hmm. And uh, if uh, there is this report and uh, you want to report and you know that this report uh, ask, can be read mm-hmm. by the uh, country director, by the um, risk management, uh, and by, I don't know, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. this report it can be read, read by different people. And mm-hmm. maybe the same country director or the same person is reading this, uh, this um, denounce, this report mm-hmm. is your abuser. Mm-hmm. So how can, how the person can be, can feel safe. Yes. And uh, there is, yeah, it's important, uh, you know, to review this, um, this manner, this, this way to report uh, this kind of uh, violence. There are different ways to, to change the, 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 the the system the change the report uh, mm-hmm. the report uh, system I'm sorry I don't know how to say that you know no it's uh bringing up some in our culture community last week someone was talking to people in a community about uh, a complaints response mechanism which is not the same but I'm just bringing it up here because the people in the community said we don't want to put in a complaint until we know who's actually reading them we don't want to call your hotline unless we know who's listening in. Yeah. We need, we need to know who can access the information that we're providing because that will change our decision as to exactly. how safe we feel to provide that. So that's something that comes up in different spaces. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you, you and your book um, and then post book, uh, <laughs> you have discussed your effort to obtain justice and you mm-hmm. actually confronted your attackers in person which was a huge achievement and unfortunately in the process you didn't want it to happen but your identity was revealed and it opened you up to public exposure um, and so what would you like to see happen differently for others who are in similar circumstances because we want to see accountability Mm. And we want to avoid inflicting further harm to the victim survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you like to see happen differently there? Well, I say something that's it's very uh, strong, but uh, it's the reality. Uh, survivors cannot be expected to denounce what the state itself denies. Uh, so rather than moral outrage, we need action. Mm. I, you know, there are so many um, statements, you know, uh, UN, UN women and a lot of mm. organizations, they talk about, yeah, we can do that, we can do that for justice and reparation. But we need action. Stop to talk. Mm-hmm. Because I, I listen to many words, but nothing in, in practice. Um, so the, the, the widespread of the widespread dimension of sexual violence anywhere, and especially in conflict settings, means that most perpetrators escape justice. And, uh, oh, and the overwhelming majority of crimes are not redressed. Um, and uh, criminal proceedings often fail sexual violence survivors, especially by further silencing their voices and, negative, and, and, and negating their agency. Um, when I was in South Sudan, uh, 
uh, I was the only survivor who uh, came back to South Sudan and uh, testified. I testified in criminal in uh, in uh, court martial uh, in front of my of my perpetrators. Mm-hmm. I came back alone without uh, uh, any kind of uh, economic help. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, the Italian embassy, uh, together with the American embassy, um, they just um, they uh, helped me uh, for the security. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, I was there, um, I was, you know, I was there. I remember it, it was like two hours. Or three, no, more than three, uh, three, four hours of uh, um, witness. witness. When I was um, there in the, in the court martial, it was like four hours. And I remember the questions of the judge. It was against me. It was like, uh, uh, why you were there? Uh, why you 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 didn't uh, defend yourself? Or, for example, did you? Uh, no, these soldiers. Have you met these soldiers before? Have you been with the, some of these men uh, the day before the the attack? So, also during the 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 the, the court, the the process, it was uh, like uh, I was judging. I mm-hmm. not the, the 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 soldiers. That was mm-hmm. like uh, against me. So I felt mm-hmm. like judged. Yeah, and. Uh, so as a result, I think that criminal accountability doesn't always necessarily constitute the, the, the preferred justice avenue for all survivors. I think that many of the survivors often advocate for more immediate forms of support, healing, and redress. So in the end, with the, the destruction of the file, was there still some results? So were the attackers put into prison, or was there any follow-up well we couldn't appear that was the problem because the the after one year of the process the soldiers were um, condemned to jail Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, the reparation was very was ridiculous four thousand euro four thousand dollars for what they did and uh, so we wanted to appeal for the reparation, but we mm-hmm. couldn't be, because uh, we couldn't appeal to the um, um, uh, Supreme Court mm-hmm. because the file was destroyed. And without the file, the Supreme Court couldn't accept the appeal. Mm-hmm. For me, they just talk and talk and talk, but there is no action. This is That was a very important process because it was the first process in South Sudan for mm-hmm. rape against soldiers. And we know what happens in South Sudan every day. The, the rape, the, 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 the percentage of women raped is huge. It's mm-hmm. huge. Uh, this brings me to an issue that you mentioned throughout your book. It's the issue of privilege. Mm. Because you comment in your book about the fact that you were um, an Italian national working in South Sudan and you had access to a special compound and you were able to fly out of South Sudan immediately, not immediately, but within a short period after the incident. And you were making eye contact with some people um, who were actually from the, the context. And you just mentioned how many, a very high number of women in this country context experience uh, rape and assault in different ways and they don't see support or justice. Do you want to talk more about that dimension? Yeah. Well, as you said, I was able to escape from that hell. I was able to access the first basic basic medical services. I was able to, um, to shout, you know, to shoot, to shout to the world what they had, had done to me. Mm-hmm. I was able to denounce. I was, I was able to talk. Uh, so I was able to make my voice here and continue. I can continue to make my voice here. Mm-hmm. And despite all the consequences that this entails, for example, being judged, criticized, and sometimes uh, acclaimed by public opinion, in any case, this remains a great privilege that I have. 
because in many parts of the world, women cannot have a voice. Women have no rights. They don't have the possibility to access the medical care, justice, and reparation. And this is, for me, a great defeat uh, of humanity. So for that reason, I feel like uh, I have and I had a privilege, you know. And you also felt, in essence, compelled to use the privilege to speak up when others couldn't. Yeah, exactly. This podcast, in this podcast, we talk a lot about the word compassion. Uh, some people define compassion as when you feel this genuine sense of connection to others suffering and you want to do something about it. Yeah. And uh, you use the word compassion in your book when you were talking about, for example, once your name had been revealed in the media and people started commenting you were looking for just one one person who is doing commentary to have some compassion um, because there's so much judgment and criticism being thrown out there just looking for one person to say something compassionate in that space and then you use the word compassion again when you were in the court martial hearing and you saw uh, the different disposition or temperament of the different uh, people who are being tried in that court you recognize some of them and you even felt a sense of compassion Um, I think there was one person in particular who's showing a lot of fear in that moment Mm, yeah and so you were able to feel compassion for people who you also wanted to be held accountable for so I I'm curious if you have thought about this, um, how we can cultivate our sense of compassion and at the same time persist with our demand for justice? Yeah. Um, I use use different, uh, um, for me, compassion and empathy Mm -hmm. are different but related. Mm -hmm. Uh, So empathy is our feeling of awareness towards other people's emotions and then and uh, an attempt to understand how they feel. And compassion is an emotional response to empathy or sympathy and creates uh, a desire to help. Mm -hmm. So when I was in South Sudan, uh, as you mentioned, I felt empathy for one of my abusers because Mm -hmm. he started to cry and was really Mm -hmm. young. And I, you know, even the most sociopathic human was once a little child who got traumatized. And all trauma um, survivors were wounded in some way. And that's sad and painful because only trauma survivors abuse their power and all trauma deserves our compassion and empathy. But uh, uh, that touched me a lot. It touched me too. Yeah, but uh, feeling and and extending empathy um, is very different than uh, the forgiveness promoted by some religion, for example. So extending empathy and compassion doesn't, however, means that we should not hold those who abuse power accountable and stand for for justice, for restorative justice. So there is a a sentence, no justice, no peace, no forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And this is totally understandable if those who have been abused are still angry, if the abuser never confessed, expressed remorse and regret, participating somehow in the reparation, you know. Uh, And also it's not, uh, uh, you know, um, the the remarks that forgive and let go, Mm -hmm. mm, uh, you know, I, I cannot support this, yeah. um, this, uh, these remarks, to be honest. Forgive yeah. and let go. Forgive and and let go. Uh, when uh, my story appeared in the media, I was shocked by the comments yeah. and the reaction because people, instead of feeling empathy and compassion for what I was through, mm-hmm. uh, I, many people blamed me just for being there in South Sudan. Yeah. And they said that it was my fault. I brought it on myself. Yeah. This is uh, really, really sad. And this reaction of the people uh, made me understand that women who have suffered violence still have a long way to go to obtain justice. Um, That's because uh, there is still a a lack of cultural change. Mm -hmm. I feel like a survivor uh, who is continually 
victimized by public opinion, by the justice system, by the organization I worked so. So this is, you know, what I was talking about when I feel yes. survivor and when I feel victim. Yeah, I agree. There's in no way we don't want to just forgive and move on. But when you mentioned people who are often in the role of perpetrator, who are abusing the power and take, in essence, taking power from others. I think it does help to think about it as to what's going on in that person's life yeah. before. Not to excuse. No, no. Exactly. Not to excuse, but just to understand kind of the cycle. Um, yeah. And in fact, uh, that touched me because uh, in one way I could feel in this, in the moment I was in South Sudan in front of this man, mm-hmm. I felt, I had empathy. I could feel his uh, is pain, you know, the same pain that I had. And so for that reason, it's important that, you know, we don't have to, yeah, it's also important to understand why a person does something like that, you know, but not justifying, just to be a bit more empathetic. And it's really touch. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's really touching because (laughs) you, you mentioned, I wrote in my notes, um, for those who are victim or survivor of assault, they are not alone. There are many other people who have had an experience like this, and that, in a sense, um, the pain pain is part of this experience. This is a this is compassion in action. This is self yeah. self compassion in action is to say, this is very difficult. This is very hard. This pain is real. I care about this pain and I'm not alone. There are other people, unfortunately, way yeah. too many, unfortunately, way too many, but there are other people who have had experiences like this. So I don't have to feel like this is my fault and that it's just because my choices have led to this, but that this is something that's happening. Yeah. It keeps happening. Unfortunately, we need to take action, as you said. So um, oh. <laughs> I wanted to wrap up. The... Sorry, I'm crying. <laughs> sorry, me no. too. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just so sad. Because uh, we interviewed uh, people who are in leadership roles in aid organizations. And they said it's very difficult because we're working in contexts where there's intergenerational trauma. Yeah. There's just generation upon generation upon generation where people have been abused. They've been violated. They've really struggled in in very difficult situations. And that has an impact, has an impact on behaviors. And there's a cycle there. And it's not like this is only in certain continents. No, this is every continent of the world has um, these kind of cycles and so it's helpful to think about <clears throat> how we can break the cycle. And I feel like <laughs> your, your path in your book, you conclude by saying today, your vocation is you want to help rebuild lives that have been destroyed by war, by hunger, by misery. And specifically, you want to accompany women who have been victims of abuse you want to help them to recognize and value their abilities. You want to help them increase their sense of worth and potential. So in a sense, you have taken um, an incident that never should have happened to you, very difficult, and you've, <clears throat> you've, you've, you've taken your path to say, what can we do to help others? So I'm curious for our listeners who want to learn more about you and how they can connect with you and they want to know about the work you do today. Would you like to say more about that? Yeah. So, yes, I mean, it's important to say that what happened to me is not just uh, an horrible thing, but it's also gave me a a gift, an opportunity. This gift is to be now a coach. 
I become a coach. I'm still continuing to live my purpose of life. So, um, and uh, I accompany women, especially victims of and survivors uh, uh, of sexual violence, build up their strengths, um, healthy beliefs, a positive coping strategy, rather than just uh, extinguishing negative behaviors and, beha- and beliefs. I accompany aid workers in prevention and recovery from burnout. And uh, I also, you know, my personal and um, professional experience and the empathy <laughs> uh, I have for the issue of, of sexual violence abuse are also the strengths that drive me to make a, sol- a contribution in my consultancy to improve prevention policies and procedures and the response of NGOs uh, to, you know, be- and before, before during and after an incident of sexual violence. Uh, so I, I have a website if you want to be, you know, if you want to know more about me, sabrinaprioli.com. And uh, I'm in uh, Instagram, in LinkedIn, but and, and, uh, I also help pro bono uh, women. They were, you know, uh, raped and they don't have the effort to have a, um, a counselor uh, or a coach. Uh, of course, I'm not a therapist. Coaching is different at, of therapy, but coaching helps to, you know, make in action what you want to do. And it's for that reason, it me a lot because it's by the present to the future. So it's, uh, it moves you a lot, uh, coaching in action and helps a lot my, my, my clients and my coachee, my coachees is my, my clients. So yeah. Sabrina, I think that's so beautiful because what we look for I don't know if every human does, but a lot of humans, they want to feel alive. They want to feel connected. They want to feel growth. They want to feel purpose. So it Mm -hmm. sounds like you have found a place where you are really connecting with people who really need the service. (laughs) And so I'm so happy for you. And I feel a lot of gratitude um, for your sharing because um, just by reading your book and talking to you now, I've learned so much. And I think our listeners can really um, benefit because you've given so much practical, but also emotional advice that can really help people going forward. So I want to thank you so much, Sabrina. Mm-hmm. Thank you. In the show notes, we'll put a link to the resources like your website and your book that you've mentioned. And I hope that we can stay connected because I know you have some other projects coming up yeah another book be, yeah another book um, that uh, we might want to reconnect with on um, but thank you so much for everything you do thank you very much Melissa for uh, this interview <laughs> bye 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 you've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Sabrina Prioli I'm really grateful that she was able to share her wisdom with us today I encourage you to take a look at her website and check out her memoir. It's called Rise Up Phoenix. Uh, You'll see information in the show notes. Um, I'd also like to thank our editor, Ziada Abaid, all the CHS Alliance members and our supporters. We'll be back soon with another episode exploring embodying change. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.